God, you're our shepherd. You protect us, you guide us, you care for us. We ask that you would shepherd us uh, through the hearing of your word this morning. God, that you would give us uh, faith in the work uh, of the Spirit in our minds and our hearts to, to respond to your word uh, with, uh, with a desire uh, to, to learn, with a desire to obey, with a heart of gratitude, with a heart of humility. God, would you draw us to Christ? Would you help us to see Jesus in all of his glory? Would you help us to see the, the beauty and the wonder of the cross? God, as we turn to your word, would you help us to also, uh, in order to see the beauty of Jesus, we, we need to see the reality of our blind spots. We need to see the reality of our sin. We need to see the reality of our, of our errors and, and, our, and our wandering. And so, God, would you, would you show us those as well? that we might uh, treasure and appreciate and understand the magnitude of your grace. Thank you, God, that your word doesn't come back void, that you have purposes for, for, which, uh, for which you want to accomplish uh, in each of us this morning. And so we ask, God, that you would prove faithful and that you would do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are starting a new series on uh, the book of uh, Philemon. We spent about eight weeks doing a series of life together and becoming together. We spent a bunch of time talking about what does it look like for us to follow Jesus together? Uh, what, what does that mean? What, what implications does that have? How do we build a community around Jesus together? And so after those, uh, those, those basically two months of doing that, we're now flipping back to going through a book uh, systematically, which is my favorite. And we're going to look at the book of Philemon. Philemon is going to show us a lot about what does it mean for the gospel to impact and transform transform relationships? What does it mean for the gospel of Jesus to impact and transform attitudes? And what does it mean for the gospel of Jesus to impact and unite people who were otherwise uh, divided? That's what Philemon is going to show us. Let me just say, I love the sound of people turning the pages of the Bible. That just, I love that sound. I love it. Um, and so uh, good luck finding Philemon. It's 20, 27 chapters. It's stuck to the back of uh, another book, and you won't be able to find it. Uh, that's, that's why maybe some of us are like, Philemon, who is this? Where is this? Is in the Bible? Um, you learn something new every day. So Philemon is, is a short letter. It's, it's so short that it's no surprise if you never heard of it, uh, but it, it's so powerful it contains the seeds for a Jesus-centered revolution. Philemon is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a Christian named Philemon who has a church in his home. Philemon also happens to own a servant, bondservant, or slave named Onesimus. Onesimus runs away from Philemon, his owner, and runs to the big city. And in the big city, he meets somebody named Paul. Paul befriends Onesimus. Paul loves Onesimus. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus. And Onesimus comes to saving faith in Jesus. Now, Paul happens to also know somebody else. Paul also happens to uh, know Philemon. And Paul also happens to have been, from what we can tell, integral in Philemon's conversion. And so Paul says to Onesimus, you need to go back to Philemon, your owner. But you're going to go back with this letter. And so Paul writes what we have as the letter to Philemon that Onesimus tucks under his arm and takes back 
to his owner from whom he has run away. That's the book of Philemon. So let's read. 1 through 16. Make sure my pages aren't stuck together, guys. Let's just do this. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." Paul sends Onesimus back with this letter tucked under his arm to give to Philemon. And notice that Paul is beginning to present to Philemon how the gospel of Jesus changes everything, including the relationship between bondservant and owner. Notice that Paul is saying that you need to receive him. I want to compel you for love's sake to receive him as a brother. Notice what he says, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Not just in a spiritual sense, but in a human bodily sense that you need to see and understand that Onesimus is not primarily somebody meant to serve you, but he is somebody that is your brother, both in the flesh and now in the Lord. The letter that Paul writes to Philemon contains the seeds of a Jesus-centered revolution for first century Rome. But for us, when we hear this letter, when we hear this owner, master, slave, bondservant, we immediately go somewhere in our minds, don't we? We immediately go to slavery in America. We immediately go to the 400-year history in our country of taking and pillaging people from their homeland in Africa and bringing them to a new country in order to have the labor to establish it. 
And so in order for us to actually begin to understand anything in the book of Philemon, we have to first deal with the things that pop into our mind when we hear some of the uh, phrases in the letter to Philemon. We are so uh, tied to the sins of America's past that we have to understand what does the Bible say about the sins of America's past in order to clear the groundwork that we could understand this letter to Philemon. And so we have to ask ourselves and we have to understand what does the Bible say about racism which fueled slavery in America? What does the Bible have to say to that question? Later as we go through this series, we're going to talk about what was this type of Roman slavery? What did this look like and how did that compare to the slavery that we're familiar with uh, historically? We'll see that there are some differences, but both of them were not good to say the least. But first, we have to ask this question, what does the Bible have to say about racism, the very racism that fueled slavery in this country? We have to ask that in order to understand Philemon, but we have to ask that in order to understand Christianity, because when we begin to be honest, we realize that American Christianity endorsed, fueled, and dated the racism that fueled slavery in this country. So we have to understand How was that possible? How did that happen? What does that mean? We have to understand this in order for ourselves to have clarity about God's character and God's word. We have to understand this in order to be able to deal with the questions and objections and hurts that people legitimately have. We have to understand this in order to be faithful disciples of Jesus. What does God's word say about the racism that was used to do such atrocities on our own land. We need to think about this because the last five years have shown us that America and American Christianity's history with racism has not really been actually dealt with. That we have skirted over the issue so much that we have added layer upon layer of false healing, false dialogue, false repentance, that we are just being confronted with a monster of racial sin intention. So, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to deal with these things. So, what we're going to do today is we're going to do a a little bit of an overview before we jump into Philemon proper over the next few weeks. We're going to do an overview and just look at this big question. What does the Bible say about racism? What what does the Bible say about about these things? How does God's word and the gospel speak to such a sin? We need, a, we need a definition in order to do this. Racism, a definition that I think is helpful is, is this, that racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that distinguishes or values one race over other races. It's an implicit or explicit belief or practice that values one race over the other race. Now, let me tell you that uh, when a country is founded on something like racism, it is impossible for any of us to not be affected by it. For 400 years, our country practiced the sin of slavery. Racism was the air that this country breathed from its first breath. And so when you have that happen for 400 years, it is not possible for any of us to be unaffected. Really, the question is to what degree Have we breathed in the air of racism? To what degree have we been impacted and affected by these type of racist ideas that values one people group over another? Have we been affected to the point that 
we view ourselves with inferiority or we view ourselves with superiority? How have we been impacted and affected and to what degree? The effect is there. We just need the diagnosis. How severe is it really? Paul says of of sin in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, no, not one. We can say the same in America of racism. No one is affected, unaffected, no, not one. We all are impacted to what degree? So it it raises this question for us to, to, to consider when we are honest about the history of the church in America and racism and slavery in America, it, it, it begs this question. This is a question maybe people have asked of you. Maybe this is a question that you have asked of yourself. Maybe uh, this is a question that you've never confronted, but you need to if you want, want to follow Jesus faithfully, is how could Christians loving God, loving God's word, be so complicit and tied to, not all, but many, tied to something like slavery? something like a race-based slavery. Is it a flaw in God? Is it a flaw in God's word? Or is it a flaw in God's people? Frederick Douglass, an abolitionist um, who did great work actually here in Boston, uh, said, said this, what I have said about and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land, America, and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupting, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Frederick Douglass said, it's not Christ. It's not God. It's not the scriptures. It's these people. We have to examine for ourselves, though, how does God's word speak about racism? How does God's word actually dismantle racism? To do that, let's look at Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. It's, it's kind of funny when you think about it. The call in God's word by God to dismantle racism, to dismantle any type of degrading of one people over and against another, the call to dismantle racism comes about 26 verses into the narrative. It comes right at the very beginning. It says this, God said in creation, as he's creating, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The Bible's call to dismantle racism comes in these words, made in the image of God. Right there, made in image the image of God. This is God handing divine dynamite to blow up the fortress of evil that is racism. Made in the image of God. Every human being descending from Adam, which is all of us according to the scriptures, made 
in the image of God. Now notice the text doesn't give any explanation about this. It's just stated, which helps us to understand that there was a comprehension of what this meant for the original hearers, that in ancient culture, this idea of being made in the image of God meant something to them that they could grasp immediately, that they understood the significance of in a way for us that we have to do a little bit of work. But in ancient culture, this was significant and understood. It was commonly believed that any king or royal ruler was essentially an image of God. It was believed that the gods put some sort of mark, some sort of power, some sort of ability into kings and rulers in order that they would rule and live in a way that mirrored God, that reflected God, that represented God to the people. But that this image of God was only, only, only upon rulers and kings and people of nobility, but not people who were ordinary. But notice what God says here. God says, all people are made in the image of God. Not just the royal, not just the rulers, not just the blue-blooded, not just the noble, but all people are made in the image of God. This means all people have the mark of the divine upon them, which means all people carry dignity, value, and worth, irrespective of what they do, irrespective of what they believe, irrespective of everything, they carry the mark of God. They are made in the image of God. This is why God takes sin so seriously, not only because it primarily offends him and his standard, But sin is done mostly, often, also against who? People. And so God is grieved when people made in his image carrying value and dignity are not treated with value and dignity. This is why God takes so seriously when we look at the Old Testament scriptures, the murder of the other, the fraud done to the other, the injustice done to the other, because people are made in the image of God. You know, what this means for us is that all people are made to reflect God, like a mirror, to live in such a way that we reflect his character through our obedience, that we reflect God, we represent God by living in his creation well and according to his way and his order. Now, all people are made in the image of God, and that image is fractured by our sin. But through grace and salvation of Jesus, that image is restored so that we can mirror and reflect and walk with God even more closely. But here in Genesis, we see the crucial fact that all people are made in the image of God, and God, in his infinite storehouse of wisdom, puts this truth 26 slash 27 verses into the narrative as if God knows that his people are prone to sin and they are prone to value one group over the other. It is as if God has insider information and says, they need to understand all my creation is made in my image. And so he gives us the divine dynamite to dismantle racism. Made in the image of God. Then we have to ask the question, though, how is it possible then if this is right here, low-hanging fruit, right in the text, you don't even have to read past the first chapter. You can just cram for the test. Just do the one chapter. 
That's it. Read, listen, if you want to know the story of the Bible, read Genesis 1, read Genesis 3, read John 1, read John 3, and then read Revelation 21, 22. You got the whole story. You got the whole gist of everything. Then go back and get more and it's going to become more beautiful, but that's what you need. And so how is it that God puts this here in the first chapter, yet the greatest theological minds in America missed it? How is this possible? How could the greatest theological minds in America know the scriptures so well, write some of the greatest sermons that we have ever seen, be some of the strongest theologians worldwide, and yet subject other image bearers to the evil of slavery? How is it possible that New England churches would commonly give to their ministers a gift, and that gift was another human being meant to be their slave? How is it possible that Old North Church, right there on Milk Street, gifted to Cotton Mather a slave who he named, guess what, Onesimus? How is this possible? How is this possible? How is it possible that one of the greatest evangelists in modern history, George Whitfield, when he was coming to America, came to Georgia and preached to slaves and saw them respond to the gospel, become believers, and would criticize slave owners for their harsh treatment of their slaves, and yet he claimed it would be impractical, quote, to survive in Georgia without purchasing a few Negroes as slaves to get this, build his orphanage. How? Because sin creates blind spots. We know from driving that you can have everything together. You can have your directions ready. You can have your seatbelt on. You can have your phone away so you're not tempted to text and drive. You can have your signals on point. You can have your hands at 10 and 2. You can have it all together, but if you do not check your blind spots, you may kill someone. You may kill yourself. Sin creates blind spots. And if we miss that people are made in the image of God, we may be right before God, but our living may be wicked. Genesis 1, the image of God, this doctrine, in conjunction with the gospel, teaches us that we are to value all human life, all human beings, because they are made in the image of God. So we must ask ourselves this, we must ask ourselves, do we actually truly see people biblically? Do we see people and immediately our first reaction is not their sin, though their sin needs to be dealt with and ours as well, but do we see them and also along with their brokenness see their, their mark of having the image of God upon them? Do we see people and say they're made in the image of God? Or do we see simp- simply see people for their sin? Do we simply see people for their difference? Do we simply see people for their weakness? Or do we see them and say, that person is made in the image of God? Or 
Or do we just look at them through our racial or cultural blind spots? I have to confess two things. One, I ate at McDonald's recently. (laughs) But more importantly, when I was in this McDonald's, I saw people. And my thought was, these people are gross. I saw people and looked at them and I said, this person is gross. And I was immediately convicted that do I believe people are made in the image of God and their dignity rests in that or that their dignity rests in blank? Where are our blind spots? Do we see people as being made in the image of God? Our blind spots, our sin blind spots are often tied to the things that we don't want to give up. Therefore, we don't want to acknowledge our blind spots because we don't want to have to repent. We don't want to have to turn and adjust and do what is right according to God's word. This is is why it's possible to have incredible doctrine and completely miss the boat on X. Right? Think about this. We do this with money. Right? We can justify all sorts of things when it comes to our money. We can justify all sorts of things when it comes to sex. We can justify all sorts of things when it comes to our anger. We can justify all sorts of things when it comes to you insert blank because we love to live according to our wisdom to get what we want rather than to follow God's word and, and obey him. Think about this. Think about this. For America to have a reason to justify slavery enabled the colonies to pay back their debt to the motherland and to have the manpower in order to establish a country. This is tied to power, money, and greed. And so no wonder they weren't ready or willing to see their blind spots. Who's going to do the work? How are they going to survive? We must be honest about our blind spots. We must answer this question. We're asking this question, how is this possible to happen in this country? Well, here's how it's possible. They knew. This is why when you begin to read, you understand that there was a problem in the colonies because certain groups and people said, we want to come preach to the slaves. But other slave owners said, no, because if you preach to them and teach them to read the scriptures, guess what? They're going to see that God loves the poor and oppressed and they're going to want to be free. We can't do that. We can't do that. They can't be baptized because then they're going to be equal. With, with, then they're going to say, well, what, if I'm baptized, I can worship with you. Why can't I go be free and have my life? They said, no. You have stories like this. You have a, a slave from Maryland, James Watkins, upon hearing the preaching of the gospel from a white minister. This is what he said. He said, if I could find this man, Jesus, not only would I be free of my slavery, but he would free me from my sins. And his slave owner said this, quote, you infernal black ghost, you have no soul. He had to beg to hear more of Christ. Made in the image of God. Blind spots because of our sin. So we must let the light of God's word dismantle our blind spots. 
We must let the light of God's word, the light of the image of God, dismantle our feelings of superiority or inferiority. And when we see people as made in the image of God, we equally see their dignity and we equally see their brokenness. We see that we share in the same dignity, we share in the same brokenness, and therefore we can share in the same remedy, Christ the Redeemer. But we must see people made in the image of God. So we see that God in his kindness puts the power to dismantle racism one chapter into the narrative to combat this evil that can bubble up out of us. There's a, uh, a black pastor in Arkansas who's written on this topic, and he gives a practical point that one of the ways to understand Genesis 1 and one of the ways to combat uh, racism in the church, this, this sense of, uh, of inferiority or superiority in all of its uh, subtle ways or forms, uh, one of the ways to combat that is to actually understand how, uh, how non-white the Bible is. It's to, it's to understand that we can, what we call white people, we cannot find in the Bible. So I don't know when you read scripture, I don't know who you think of or what you think they look like, but let me tell, uh, let me tell you, there are no white people in the Bible. And the, 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 the brown people are not just the Egyptians that have to deal with God's wrath, which, which we all need to deal with. Right? So, so one of the ways to, to combat this is to understand that the Bible is a very brown, tan, and non-European, non-American book. So, for example, I know we're, we're visual learners. We have a, uh, we have a map. <laughs> These are the five centers of early Christianity, right? Notice where they are. Not over there. Not even hardly in Europe. We have North Africa, right? We have what is present-day Iraq. We have Jerusalem, obviously, Constantinople, and we have uh, Italy, right? These are the centers of early Christianity. We, We have to understand this. We have to understand this because this helps us to understand it, to see that all people are made in the image of God. This is what our forefathers for this country did not see, did not understand, did not, if they did understand, embrace, which led them into catastrophic sin. We must understand this. But there's a greater power that helps dismantle racism beyond understanding the, the context of Scripture, and in addition to understanding the beauty and the power of the fact that people are made in God's image, the, the greater understanding that can dismantle racism if we embrace it by faith and remove our blind spots and say, God, take them from us, correct us, convict us, change us, is that, that greater power is, is the cross of Jesus. If we look at Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to notice that, again, our friend, the Apostle Paul, is writing. And notice that what he's going to say in these first two verses of Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, writing to the church at Ephesus, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, you, were, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What in the world is Paul talking about? That is the question we are all asking. Paul, make it plain. Paul is saying this, and and this helps us again, that there was a huge racial and ethnic conflict at the time of the first century and in which the context that Jesus ministered. There was a conflict between Jews and Gentiles, Jewish people of geography and ethnicity and biology, and people who were not, Africans, Romans, Greeks. There was this conflict, which is why Jesus, often in his ministry, is interacting and dealing with the racial or cultural other, and people are like, what in the world are you doing? Because these things did not happen. Notice that what Paul says here, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh, you used to be called the uncircumcision. You know what you could say this? Hey, you black people, you used to be called the N-word by these folks. But now Christ has done something. Remember how you were separated at one time from these people, alienated, cut off. You were cut off from God, but these people also wouldn't accept you. Now Christ has come and he's done something. Look, look at what Christ has done. He has broken down the wall of hostility in his flesh. So Jesus' death does something to, to, to unite these divided groups that hated one another, that had hostility towards one another, that had all sorts of tension towards one another. And now look at the text, 15, that he might make in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus is is saying, Paul rather, is saying that Jesus' cross is so powerful that Gentiles who, who despised and hated Jews and were despised and hated by them in large part are now becoming one body with the Jews who hated and despised them. They are now becoming one new body in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. If we would let Jesus deal with our blind spots. You can look at the stories of Acts and you can see that when when Paul comes to certain towns, people in those towns will say, those Jews are coming here to start a riot. Does that sound familiar? You can look at other texts. These Gentiles are doing all this jazz. Does that sound familiar? We have to understand that the very issues that we are dealing with now and have needed to deal with for 400 years are the very same similar parallel ones that were dealt with in the first century between Gentile and Jew, in which Paul writes and said, the wall of hostility is broken down through the body of Jesus. Everybody in here, repent. Trust Jesus. Let him deal with your blind spots. Trust in his salvation and know that you are one. The power of the cross, the power of the gospel is what can dismantle the stronghold of racism. If we would believe this truth. See, we can believe in the forgiveness of our sins, but but dismiss the, the reconciling reality of the cross that through Jesus we are one. 
Jesus actually died not just to restore us to the Father, but to restore us to one another in a new community where racist ideas and ideology are put in a coffin. If we would admit our blind spots and trust in the truth of the gospel. And here's here's how this works out. That the reconciling power of the gospel comes when we are truthful about our blind spots. One of Jesus' big sayings is, is that he did not come to, to call the righteous, but to call the sick. This doesn't mean that he doesn't want to forgive the righteous. It Does, doesn't mean that he's not going to deal with those who think that they're righteous. But he is saying with that idea that part of the preconditions for being healed by him, for being forgiven of our sins, for being restored to the Father through him, is the ability to admit and be truthful about our sins. We must be truthful about our blind spots. We must be truthful about the ways in which we look at certain people and may look at their body, we may look at their skin color, we may look at how they talk, we may look at their culture, and we immediately, implicitly, though we may not want to, we begin to mark them on a scale that says more valuable, less valuable. We must be truthful about this in order for God to break us, forgive us, and change us that we would honor Christ according to his word. So let's be truthful about the sins of our blind spots. Right? One of the biggest ways you can see this is if you think everything in your culture is normal and everything about other people's culture is weird and bad, you have a problem. Right? A great test for this is our our brothers and sisters right here, Source of Light International Church. When we finish, they start. And their music and their style is different than ours. If you hear that and you say, oh, that's different. Great observation. If you hear that, you say that's different. You have a cultural blind spot. You are falling into the very same thing that America bathed in and drank of for 400 years. When we elevate our culture over and against others, we are walking down the path of ethnocentrism or racism. We are building up the dividing wall of hostility that Jesus died to break down. Now, every culture has sinful things in it and redeemable things in it and neutral things in it. When we take our neutral and say, this is the standard, we are walking in our blind spots. When we think the way that we do everything is normal because it's the way we do it and the way everybody else does it is wrong, we are walking in our blind spots. The only thing we must hold up as normal is the truth of God's word. And so we must be careful and be honest of our blind spots. What this means is that a lot of us have breathed in the air of these ideas and walk in these thoughts without wanting to. You can recall a... a, reading about uh, a prominent leader who shared in one of his books that one of his leaders came to him and said, hey, you're a racist. You don't mean to be, but you are. He's like, oh, good morning, okay? Tell me, tell me, please tell me more. This is a very serious charge, right? But, and he was, he was speaking in hyperbole, but he was dealing with these same type of things where it's like, you elevate everything in terms of how you do it, but you don't evaluate 
things according to scripture. You just think the way you do it is right because that's what you've been used to. And the way everything else, everyone else lives, the way they worship, the way they celebrate, the way they uh, interact with their family, you think that's all weird and wrong. You elevate your way of doing things according to your culture against everyone else. Do you understand that runs contrary to the word of God? So we have to be honest about our blind spots. And when we tell the truth about our sins, when we tell the truth about our tendencies, God, I am prone to elevate. When I see people like this, I elevate them. When I see people like this, I, I, I mark them lower. When, when I interact with these type of people, I do this. And when I interact with others, I do this. When we are honest with God about that, do you know what God does to us? He doesn't give us the judgment we rightfully deserve. He doesn't disown us from his family. He doesn't put a scarlet letter on us and shame us. The way it would happen if you admitted this on faith, he doesn't treat us that way. Do you know what scripture says? Scripture says in, in 1 John 2, it says, if anyone has sinned, they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So here's what happens. When we are truthful about our sins, any sin in our life, this is what God does in his courtroom. He marshals out. God as the judge says, okay, you've admitted your sin. You've been honest. Good. I knew that. If you're going to admit that, let, let, me, let me call someone. Let me call my son, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's going to come and he's going to stand here and he's going to advocate for you. So now you are forgiven because my son, the advocate, is standing beside you. He's going to take your sin. He is going to carry that guilt. He is going to pay that penalty. And you, my friend, are made righteous. Though you have sinned, you have been truthful, and Jesus Christ the righteous has advocated for you. So there's no reason to hide these blind spots. God has made an advocate for us if we would trust in the advocate in the work that he has done upon the cross. So let God do work on our blind spots. Allow God's grace to enable us to come clean. Allow God's grace to help us to love people according to the truth of his word. Let's pray. I want to encourage you to take a moment of silent prayer uh, and reflection and ask God to show you blind spots. Father, we thank you for the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, God, that Jesus is our advocate, that Jesus has died, that Jesus has risen. He has died for our sin of, of, of not valuing uh, other people the way you do according to your word. He has died for uh, our sins of, uh, of our blind spots. Uh, each and every one, past, present, future, he has is, he is made atonement uh, for, for all who trust in him. And so God, help us to, to grasp the beauty and the depth of what Christ has done for us, but also to grasp the beauty and the depth of what Christ has done to restore uh, people to you and to one another in uh, and through his body. Lord, would you make that more and more the reality of our lives? Would you make that uh, more and more the reality of our church? Lord, and we, would we be able to, to uh, reflect the, the restoring power of the gospel in our lives, in our community, and to the world around us? We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your patience with our sins and our waywardness. Thank you, God, that you are uh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.